know about bless her heart or bless his heart? Either one works, actually, depending on the gender of the person. And I think it's mostly a Southern thing. Now, when it's said to someone's face, it's usually sincere. Someone is going through a rough time, so you respond, oh, honey, bless your heart. Classically said after a kid's fall, especially a cute little kid who's crying, oh, bless your heart. But if the person you're talking about isn't in the room, it's usually a little less kind or gracious or something like that. So someone got drunk and drove their car into a ditch again. Bless her heart. Someone's caught cheating on a spouse. Oh, bless his heart. It's often a most insincere form of concern, dripping with more than a little bit of judgment. And unfortunately for us, there's a Christian version too. I'll pray for you. Likewise, there's a very sincere version, the one that we share each week. Someone is having a difficult time, and you genuinely want to remember them and their problems before God. Then there's the horribly insincere, dripping with judgment version. I'll pray for you. It's often whipped out when people haven't made some great choices. So today's text is kind of the classic evangelism text, and I think if we talk about just that, I'll pray for you, we stumble upon pretty quickly why evangelism makes us nervous, why it's often jokingly called the E word, and why, yes, this whole story of sending people out two by two, 70 or 72 of them, depending on the story, makes us nervous. I'll just go ahead and say it doesn't help that most of us have had our doors knocked on by people who had also been sent out two by two. In the last year alone, my door has been knocked on by Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses who are looking for someone who speaks French. That is all the information I have on that. And someone who wanted to tell me about God as mother. A movement that as best I can tell started in South Korea and has now launched a couple of churches in California and one here. She interrupted my Sunday afternoon pastor nap, I do remember that. <laughs> but the other problem is the, something, the bigger problem is something that lurks in the back of our mind. We know that there are Christians that we call brother and sister, but sometimes we don't want to be like them. And one of the milder stories from my own 30-some years in church now was in college. And I was the only college kid at a tiny church near the campus. I stayed for potlucks. And one in particular, I stayed because they, of course, said, oh, you're welcome. And because I was in college, I didn't bring anything because I lived in a dorm. And cooking in the dorm was actually not one of the I chose to breathe. But I also at the same time was teaching the youth group class, doing their Sunday evening program, teaching their Sunday morning Sunday school class. And I heard from one of them, well, couldn't you at least bring something to drink? <laughs> I knew exactly where that had come from. His mom. 
in a conversation that undoubtedly happened where the kid could overhear. And that's a pretty mild story overall. So many of you have heard of the Barna Group. They're a group based out of California that does polling across denominational lines and about Christianity in general. And they're pretty good at what they do. One of their studies a few years ago actually ended up in a book called Unchristian. And it confirmed exactly what we didn't want to believe. Most people think a whole bunch of things about Christians. That we're judgmental, hypocritical, homophobic, and a few other adjectives that I'm pretty sure we don't want thrown our way. And enter the problem of sometimes we're a lot better at saying what we aren't than what we are. And the same story of going out two by two, I grew up fundamentalist. I grew up with churches that did this. And so I have the worst church images possible when you mention evangelism. Repent, evildoer. Something like that. There are threats of hell. And I always think of that inevitable question. Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? No wonder evangelism becomes the E-word for a lot of people. So I'm hoping it's helpful if I just come out and say it. Even in this text, even in this text that is about sending out people two by two, Jesus never mentioned conversion. At least, not like that. While preaching was involved, those 70 sent out, so was doing so. Healing people, curing all kinds of illness. And we even probably do well to spend some time naming all the types of illnesses that we can spend time curing. Social illnesses, spiritual ones, economic. Because have an idea that the worst illnesses around us might have some to do with the body and a whole lot to do with other things. Maybe we could even spend a few hours talking about a broken healthcare system. But we won't do that today. Instead, we'll talk about what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say to curse the people who didn't listen to you. Shake off your feet and complain is actually what he said. Something good came and you ignored it, so shake the dust off your feet. But it didn't come with a command to curse. Not with a threat of hell. Not with sickness. Not with boils, not with frogs, not with fire falling from the sky. And quite frankly, if you want a biblical precedent for any of those things happening as a curse, you can find it. But Jesus didn't say that. Jesus says, leave them to themselves. There are others who need to hear. But the part of the command we can't ignore is this. Go. Go into other places. Do the things you've been taught once you're there. Heal the sick. Make sure you know God is near. Receive the gifts they have to offer you. Food, shelter, whatever they can share. It's assuredly a better image than telling people to repent unless they want to go to hell. Now here's the hitch that I'm guessing is the same hitch for a lot of you. None of that actually makes me feel any better about evangelism. 
throwing up fundamentals, despite having whole events talking about how to convert people. Here's what me talking to people about Jesus or church looks like if I'm, say, in a coffee shop or maybe in the grocery store line. And it kind of goes like that. I actually, you know, don't like to broadcast the back of the pastor either because you cannot believe all the strange things people they tell you in their approaches. But the real kicker is it's not just the grocery store lines, it's not just the coffee shops. Occasionally, I had these conversations with people I know well, or at least well enough to know what they need, or that they need something. To tell the truth, I'm often just watching them struggle to find anything that will give them some grounding in the world. And even though I know in my head the answer could be Jesus, sometimes don't want to be that friend who's also a pastor. And therefore, I don't know what to say. So maybe we actually do better to look at the time before Jesus sent out in 72. Because while he actually sends them with little preparation, he commands them, in fact, don't take a purse or a wallet, don't take extra clothes, don't take any of the things you would take for a trip. They actually had a lot of preparation beforehand. Years, maybe. A long time of hearing and watching and waiting. I don't know that they had meetings planning out the next thing or if they had a training on evangelism. I do think that they learned how to speak engagingly about the faith they were learning every day. So maybe we start there. Not with the learning of faith, but with the articulating of it. And maybe just for today, you can think some about what it would mean to have an elevator speech about your faith. I'm betting most of you know what an elevator speech is at this point. It's the short thing that if you get stuck in an elevator with someone, rather than awkward silence, you have a captive audience for an entire elevator ride. So what can you say in those 30 seconds, maybe a minute and a half? Well, here's the thing for me. This isn't about selling Christianity. It's a personal version. It's the succinct way of if you had to say, why do I bother with this, with all of this, with church, with everything, you had to articulate your faith in a very short way, what would you say? I bet we have as many different elevator speeches as we have people in this room. Now the good news is, since I didn't warn you about this, I'm not going to ask any of you to give, you, give your elevator speech. But I will give you mine. It's not all about you. Does that sound harsh? Maybe. But still I'd say it's not all about you. And that's actually a really good thing. You see, here's what I live or find in my life outside of these walls, outside of this location. I'm at the age where there's a lot of people having kids. And they're trying to raise those kids as best they can. 
But here's the thing that I'm guessing many of you know. Having kids unleashes the crazy. <laughs> I'm not just talking about the baby itself. It unleashes the crazy about what it means to be a parent. Because there's a million things to get right. There are doulas to hire and midwives to find. People that I know, they hire a doctor if they're only unfold. The implication, of course, of the doctor being, well, maybe you don't care about your child enough to choose a natural way. In fact, outside of church, every baby whose family has been a gift to was born at home in the last five years. Now, that might say more about me than the culture as a whole, but we know this much is true. The bar for birthday parties and choosing the right schools and the right summer camp and all of those things is getting set really high. Because there's a million things to get right, you have a million things that you might get wrong. So yeah, guess what? It's not all about you. And that's good news. Your kid doesn't have to be at the center of your family's universe. You can have a life and be a parent. In fact, the fact that it's not all about you is rooted in the belief that you can never get it 100% completely right. And that's a perfectly acceptable thing. So when your kid is covered in mud, running down the street, then, you know, somehow it'll be okay. Jesus somehow makes right what you can. It's not all about you. And I think about money. Because we're in a world where we're so aware that there's no way on earth you'll ever have enough of it. Now, of course, there's the occasional pushback. Many of you have seen the tiny house movement that is happening with a few people choosing to live in five or 800 square feet. I would be so up for that if it weren't for shoes and books. <laughs> but mostly it's the narrative you could make more. If you do this, you can make more money. And that means the doing more means you make more. And when you get that more, then there's still more. It's not all about you. It's actually amazing. I click around on a screen once a month to send a check here. There's no writing involved anymore. And it arrives in an envelope. Never comes to this table. But I often think about, what if I didn't send that check each month? I'd undoubtedly have more stuff. I'd do more things. But I think even more, I'd be wondering, well, what's next? But it's not all about me. It's not all about you. My money goes to something doing more than I ever could. If it's all about me, I have the option of being as greedy as I want. I don't have to worry if the cashier selling me food is making a living wage. Or if the farmers who created that food are also living well. But if it's not all about me, then I probably do. Because here's the actual thing. If we just want to talk about church, I firmly believe it's not all about you. It's at the heart of this covenant. How does it being church? Because quite frankly, this is the place that calls you 
to go to funerals in the middle of your work day. And think about the Sundays when we dedicate babies. And we all make a promise, not just the parents, not just godparents if they name them, to raise that baby, but all of us. This is our child. We will love when they're an obnoxious teenager. We will see when they're off to college. Who will teach not to maybe make a run in front of the community or tackle them before they get to the tent? It's a promise. It's a promise not just to raise that child, but also a promise in this place you let other people care for your kids. It's a place where we give away money, not just in the offering plate, but all kinds of places. We walk through illnesses. On the Sundays when we baptize people, they're always baptized with a mentor. Someone from before who's older than you, who can help you, walk with you in this faith. It's a covenant. It's a covenant that claims it's not all about you or me. But a Savior who calls us to something more. It's all about you. It's not all about you. Drives out fear, drives out greed, drives out all of those things that cause us to focus so inwardly, there's no way we can see our neighbors, much less God. It might be one of the most freeing things you hear. It's not all about you. So there's the short version and the long version of my elephant.